So then within the, the, the Mosaic Covenant, he seems to grab in the next week a, a smaller group of people, those who will respond to him by faith, those who will um, look up to him when bad things happen. And we talked about the serpent in the wilderness and how um, those who would look upon the serpent when stung would, uh, would be healed. And he kind of created this concept of faith that Jesus called later into being and said, just like that serpent must be lifted up, I must be lifted up, and whoever looks on me will be saved. And so he creates this kind of seed of faith, calls this seed of faith within this broader community. And then within that, the next week we talk about Jeremiah and how um, God um, narrows down even more to the heart of man and that he was going to put his law in the heart of man and that we would be able to commune with him intimately because it would, the, the law would be within us and not without us. And then the, the last week uh, of Lent was Isaiah where God, um, where the, the prophet kind of outlines this suffering servant in a very specific way and he's kind of speaking on behalf of the Messiah and says, you know, that God has, has chosen me, that I'll never be um, shamed because... Um, God's with us. So we kind of narrow all the way down to Jesus, that the, the ultimate covenant, the ultimate promise is in Christ himself, that it's that God like covenants with Christ. Um, and Jesus even says, those whom the Father gives me, no one can take out of my hand. Like, it's almost like God has made this promise to Jesus, covenanted with Christ, that those who are Christ will be his. And so we just watch it narrow down. The, the ultimate kind of pinpoint of the covenants of God is in Jesus. It's all in Jesus. And so, going into our, our next series, and this, is, this will be our next long series, we'll be here um, really all the way till November, I believe, about 30 weeks. Um, I want to do something centered around Jesus. And, you know, so I didn't really want to dive into something from the Old Testament where we were trying to see shadows of Jesus, but um, I want to do something kind of zoomed in on Jesus himself. Um, and so I started reading some of the things Jesus said, and I kind of settled on, uh, on what we call the five discourses of Matthew. So these are five um, kind of very specific speeches that Jesus gave. They're sermons of Jesus's. Um, most likely, they're not the only five. Uh, John kind of says um, hyperbolically that, uh, that if... Everything Jesus did and said was written down. The earth couldn't contain the books. But, so we know he said and did a lot. But for some reason, Matthew, when he wanted to kind of write down an account of Jesus, honed in on these five, these five big speeches. And, and we kind of separate them over some of the other things Jesus just randomly said. Because each one ends with this kind of statement. And when Jesus had made an end to all of these sayings, like almost like when Jesus had wrapped up the service. And so I thought it would be fun to just look at these five sermons and just kind of spend some time looking at what Jesus taught when he taught. Because we don't always do this. A lot of times we focus really hard on what Jesus did, especially his death and resurrection and the work that that had in our salvation, which is awesome. But we don't spend a lot of time talking about what he said. Um, we have little, you know, kind of spare random phrases that we throw out that were from Jesus, but we don't, uh, we don't get a super deep into into what he actually taught, which I thought would be fun. So here's our five discourses. We've got the Sermon on the Mount, which most of us are pretty familiar with, and we're going to start there. And then it goes to the missionary discourse. This is when uh, Jesus sends out his disciples by twos, and he tells them to go out and, and kind of spread this message. And he gives them um, some guidelines, and he 
talks about what it's like when you go out and talk about the gospel, the good news. Then there's the parabolic discourse, which this is where Jesus spent uh, a pretty lengthy time just giving parable after parable after parable about what the kingdom is like. Some of these we're pretty familiar with, but we're going to spend some time there. And then there's the ecclesiological discourse, which means the discourse of church matters, where he talks about being the church and what the church does. And there's a few passages in there we draw on quite a bit about you know what you do when someone offends you, and there's just some kind of direction on how we live. And last is the eschatological discourse, or the discourse of end times, and this one I'm a little nervous about, because I'll be honest, I didn't like spend a ton of time in these and then go, you know, I know exactly what I want to say here and what we're going to teach. I just thought, wouldn't this be fun? We're just going to go through this together and kind of read and study as we go. And so uh, Matthew 24 and 25, the eschatological discourse, I don't go to very often. It scares me. I don't like it. So it's going to be fun to go in there and see what we come out with because I don't really have a plan on what it's going to look like when we get there, but... um, but we'll do it, and it'll be fun. So for about the next 30, 30 weeks, we'll be looking at the, uh, at the teachings of Jesus. So the other thing I really liked about this is that it follows last year's book teaching, book study uh, well. Because we studied the book of Acts last year. And the early church would have gotten Jesus in that order. Um, most of the people in the book of Acts got introduced to the risen Jesus first. Um, when we talk about uh, Pentecost, am I where I'm supposed to be? Yeah, we're still good. When we talk about Pentecost, 3,000 people joined the church that day. So that's, we know that the original people that were in the upper room were small enough to fit in an attic room of a house. So we know it wasn't a lot of people. Um, and we also know they were big enough to, when they came out of the house, half drunk from the Holy Spirit that had just moved on them, it caused a stir and people gathered around to see what was going on. So it wasn't two people, but it also wasn't a hundred people. We don't know how many people crammed into that attic room, but fairly small group of people. And then day one, there's 3,000. You know, 3,000 people get saved. And we we assume a lot of them left because this was Pentecost. This was a a ceremony. This was a, a ceremony when you traveled. If you were a Jew and you were from away, you traveled back to Jerusalem. This was a pilgrimage festival, so you came back to Jerusalem to celebrate. And we assume uh, the crowd that they describe there in the day of Pentecost, they said there was people from here and here and here and here, all these away places. So these aren't people who would have lived in, in, in Jerusalem or, uh, or even in Galilee up north when Jesus lives. These wouldn't have been people who would have been familiar with the historical Jesus, with what Jesus was like and how he walked and talked, blah, blah, blah. So they get introduced to Jesus via Peter's first sermon. So they kind of get introduced to the risen Son of God, Savior, first. And, and then the Gospels, I'm assuming that these stories were being told um, orally, um, that the apostles were telling these stories constantly, but nobody would have gotten what we consider the Gospel books, where you can sit down and read it from front to back until 65 or 70. We assume they were written 65 or 70. Some people try to date them as late as 100, but there's no mention of the destruction of the temple. And so it seems kind of funny that they would have written this big historical thing and the, the temple was destroyed in 70. And so we assume if they were writing a, a history after 70, boy, that sure would have come up. Some people think that some of the 
some of the things that Jesus said about the destruction of the temple was somebody looking back and saying that he prophesied. So some more skeptical people will try to put the books behind the temple and say they were kind of leaving it out to be dodgy. But I think that's pretty thin. I think the books were probably written 65 to 70, somewhere right right there. And so the, the church had had, you know, 30, 40 years to, to grow and spread. And it had spread through up into Europe and up through Europe and extensively uh, in Palestine and up through Greece and Turkey before anybody could have sat down and read about Jesus' life. And so everybody else got the risen Jesus first, the historical Jesus second, except for this small group of apostles. And so it's kind of interesting that we're studying it the same way. Last year we did Acts. We kind of looked through the early church and some of the early proclamations of Jesus and how Jesus kind of sent his disciples out as as like um, royal envoys to go out and spread his message. And he, at that point, he's the risen Savior. At this point, he's not. This is just a carpenter's son. So, is this not the carpenter's son? Is it not? Is his mother called Mary? Is not his mother called Mary? And his brothers, James, Josie, Simon, and Judas, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So, when Jesus actually became Jesus, when he did the, the things we read about, he's a no-name. He's an absolute non-entity at this point. Nobody would, have, nobody would have remembered his birth. If you remember, the witnesses of his birth were shepherds and people from the east away. Like These are not the kind of people that could go about you know, spreading the story. So, so the, the birth story would have come out Probably with this book, the apostles would have probably been telling the story, but when Jesus shows up on the scene at 30 years old and gets baptized and starts teaching these things, nobody would have remembered the birth story. That was 30 years ago, and the witnesses were um, not the kind of people that people gave much credit to. You don't give much credit to a bunch of shepherds who say the star came and a bunch of crazy stuff happened and they heard angels singing. That, you go, that's good. Go back out in the field. That's why you're out there. Like, nobody would have given them much credit. And so, um, when Jesus shows up, he is an absolute nobody, which I think is important because that means something in his life was utterly compelling. Something in his teachings. We have records of, well, 5,000, 7,000, and we're pretty sure that was men, so we're talking maybe 10,000, 15,000 people gathering to hear him preach, gathering to hear him teach. And this is, this is a, a guy who shows up. This isn't somebody... And, and back then, the rabbis, they had reputations. They had you know, celebrity and fame. You know, everybody knew the big shot rabbis. Like every, if he was a big player, it would have been known and it would have been... I mean, we, if you kind of leave the gospel accounts and go to some of the historical writings of the time, you'll find out that there was a lot of rabbis who were notable historical figures during the 30 years that Jesus was um, up in Nazareth. And so there was, so they had their form of celebrity, if you want to call it that, their form of notoriety. And Jesus wasn't one of them. When he shows up, he's basically a no-name. And then somehow in these three years of life, something he taught, and we know the miracles played a role, but something about this man turned everything over in three years. And so these writings that we're going to study, these were literally world-changing in a remarkably small 
amount of time in a backwoods, nowhere kind of place. And so something huge, there's something huge about this. That, I mean, we have one, uh, there's one account where they think that there's probably people gathered listening to him preach for three or four days. I mean, bad enough, it was long enough that Jesus was like, if we don't feed these people, they are going to pass out and die on the way home. Like, it's been, they've been too long without food. We have to feed them before they can go. Like, most people believe that they were there for multiple days listening to him teach. And so there was something about this guy's teaching. How many of you guys can listen to me talk for four days? I mean, probably three, maybe not four. But, um, so Jesus' teaching was clearly different. There was clearly something about it. But this wasn't the greatest part of his teachings, in fact. I want to read this one. When Jesus came up from the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, that the Son of Man am? Hmm. So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Assuredly, I say to you, these are, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This seems to me to be the, kind of the central text of Matthew, kind of the if you're a, if you're writing narrative, this is the the climax. It's almost thinner in the book. Things from here start to go kind of fast towards the towards the uh, the crucifixion scene, and everything feels like it picks up steam after this kind of conversation. Almost like when Matthew wrote this gospel, he had in his mind this question: like, who do men say that I am? Who do you who do you say that I am? Who is this guy? And the timing here is interesting because. Peter is not offered the resurrection at this point. This is something that we have to catch. So when Peter makes this statement, there's no, this isn't a resurrection, like he didn't get to see Jesus who he saw die, show up in the room again, and then make this declaration, wow, you know, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is the conclusion he came to basically off of these teachings, basically off of, off of the, the life of Jesus, So something in these teachings gave him this understanding. And we know that there was miracles. We know the miracles happened. We also know, based on what Jesus says here, this is a work of God. That this is, he said, flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. But it seems that he used Jesus' teaching. In fact, he says it better in, uh, uh, is that John 16? Yeah. Nope. John 6, sorry. But Simon Peter answered... Okay, so here's what had happened at this point. Uh, Jesus taught some really weird stuff. And it wasn't... It, was weird, it wasn't weird once the resurrection had happened, but at this point it's weird. Like, it's, he's saying, unless you drink my blood and eat my flesh, you can't... Blah, blah. And everybody's like, whoa, what are you talking about? That is super creepy. And, uh, and if you hadn't had you know, the, the table to draw back on. This would have been a hard one. And a lot of people turned and quit following him because of, of this teaching. And so Jesus turns to the disciples and he goes, hey, are you going to leave too? And Peter says this. This is Peter's answer. He says, but Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we've come to believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So in, I, I think this is probably John retelling of that conversation in Matthew, but he says, you're the son of the living God. But he, he hinges it on this. You have 
the words of eternal life. Something about Jesus' teaching, he knew that you, what you say, the way you teach, the things you teach are different. You have the words of eternal life. But there's something bigger going on here we have to catch that, that Peter didn't cling to Jesus' teachings in this statement. He doesn't just say, we can't go anywhere else. We love your teaching. You know, we love the things you teach. He said, we've come to believe you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's, that's the crux because this isn't a new philosophy. This isn't a good moral teaching. This isn't a worldview or a school of thought that, that Peter is buying into. Like he loves the teaching and he believes them to bring life, but ultimately what he's drawing himself to is Jesus. Jesus' person, Jesus' self. And I bring that up because this is a common misconception that I don't want to get off on as we go into this study because we could go into this study as though we're, we're studying like the teachings of Jesus like he's Buddha or something. Like, like there's something magical in the teachings themselves that we can, you know, kind of create a new philosophy to live by, a new, you know, kind of thing. And, that, and that's not what I want to do. I mean, we, we tend to do that at times, but it's supposed to go the other way. I think of it this way, this comparison here. This is the way we generally think of it. When we talk about the, the kind of Abrahamic religions, we generally think Moses, you know, was the central figure of Judaism. Jesus, the central figure of of uh, Christianity and Muhammad is the central figure of Islam, right? We, we tend to think of it that way. And that feels logical, but I don't think that's true. I think the true comparison looks more like this. Moses, what he did was he, uh, he was a vehicle that God used to bring the Torah, which became the central figure of Judaism. So that even once Moses died, the Torah continued. The Torah stayed the central piece of Judaism. The apostles, Paul, Peter, these guys, they were the vehicle God used to show the church through the scripture who Jesus was. But Jesus stays the central figure. So it, it would probably look more like this, if we're honest. The Torah is the central figure of Judaism. Jesus is and has to be the central figure of Christianity. Like sometimes we get so often, I. Uh, I have to be careful here because take this way saw, but we tend to rather have a trinity. We have the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and Bible. You know what I mean? I don't want to downplay the Bible by any means. The Bible is the Word of God, absolutely. But it's got to be Jesus. He's the central figure of Christianity always. Does that make sense? Everybody kind of getting the difference that it's, it's subtle? But Jesus wasn't just giving us a teaching. Like he wasn't here to be the vehicle by which we get a new worldview. He was, he is the worldview. And the teaching is how we come to know him. It's how we come to fall in love with him and get enamored with him. The teaching was what drew people to him, but it was him they were drawn to, not the teaching itself. Does that make sense? Do we feel that difference? So as we go into this study, I don't want to come up with a new way to live. That's not what we're trying to do. I'm not trying to say live this way. This, these aren't proverbs. This, these aren't just like little parables that we can say, if you'll do this, you will be blessed. You know, and, uh, and especially next week as we get into the Beatitudes, it's real easy to try and treat these things like proverbs. Like those who do this equals this. Like, and, we, and we tend to do that. And that's not what's happening here. So what we have to make sure we do 
is, is allow these teachings to draw us to Jesus. That's what we're wanting to have happen here. So what we're looking for is, who is this guy? Who, who is this person who shows up on the scene as a nobody in, I mean, in terms of the Roman Empire, Palestine was, was the sticks. I mean, nobody cared what was going on in Palestine. And in Palestine, if you zoom in, Nazareth was the sticks. So Jesus was from the sticks of the sticks. Like he's, he's nobody, like the hub of Palestine, which remember is, is the peon in the greater game of the Roman Empire. But Jerusalem was the hub of, of that little peon place. And you've got to go through Samaria up into this kind of backwoods country place of Galilee, Nazareth within Galilee, to find Jesus. And so this guy shows up on the scene in a no place of a no place and somehow changes the entire world. Our, our whole calendar, our whole everything is bent around the life of this one guy. And so what we want to do is take these teachings and say, what made him that compelling? And we know that, you know, we could like, so what I'm, I guess what I'm saying is, we don't want to bring to it our, we don't want to hear the words of Jesus as though they're the words of Jesus. Like, they are that, and we want to let them be that. But at the same time, what I hope to do over this next study is say, what did this guy say that was so incredible that he, that he gathered this many people that would come and listen to him and that would literally follow him because of what he taught and what he did. So, how do we respond to this? I hope that as we gather around the table tonight and as we sing, and that you would just let this question just kind of bounce around in your head for a while. Just for this last few minutes. And maybe change it. Who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Do we would just let that question work on us and just pick on us a little bit. My prayer tonight is that you wouldn't answer it too quickly. That you just let it sit there. That maybe you would, that if your quick reaction is, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, then maybe sit there and go, does my lifestyle reflect that? Does my lifestyle reflect my belief? The way I live, do I live like he's the Christ, the Son of the living God? Maybe look at your, your, the things you stress about, the things you worry about, the things you're afraid of, the things you fear. Do those reflect that you worship the Christ, the Son of the living God? Maybe look at your money and the things you spend money on, the, what you do with your money. Does that reflect that you're here to worship and serve the Christ, the Son of the living God? Or maybe your calendar, maybe your, your, your date book. If you were to look at it, would you say, absolutely, my calendar reflects that I'm serving the Christ, the Son of the living God? So in all those things, maybe just let that question just bounce around in there. Because the quick answer is, all, is not always the true answer. It's not always what's truly going on in our hearts. The quick answer is, he's Jesus, he's the Son of God. That's what I've been taught to say. Did I say it right? <laughs> like that's, we, it's a, we treat it like it's a catechism. Like, he's the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then nothing in our life reflects that. It's almost like saying, you know, to your spouse, I love you, I love you, I love you, and then abusing them. Like, 
I don't like the way you love. Like sometimes your behavior has to match what comes out of your mouth. And so, as we sing, I just want to let that question just pick on us. And I want to add this: if your answer is no, <laughs> no, my life does not reflect that He's the Christ, the Son of the Living God. No, I don't live as though I believe He's the Christ, the Son of the Living God. I don't spend. I don't think and dwell and stress and the things that I'm afraid of don't reflect that he's the Christ the living God. I don't spend my time as though he's the Christ the living God. Whatever. If, if the answer is no, then I'm not here to pick on anybody or beat on anybody or make anybody feel bad. Come to the table and remember that his body was broken and his blood was shed be, to cover us even when we don't live right, even when we blow it, even when we're not living the way we should, that's what his grace is for. And that's why we come to the table just to remind ourselves every week that he was faithful so that even when we're not, we're still good. We still have life. So don't, don't take that as a chance to beat it up. But here's what, I w- here's what I hope you would do. If your answer is no, no, I, don't, I just don't live like he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, then maybe you would dig into this study over the next 30 weeks. Maybe you would say, I want to know this guy. I want to see if he compels me the way he compelled thousands. I want to see if there's something in, in Jesus that moves me. And you can only really go into a study if you're honest with that first question. If you're honest with that first question and you go, no, my life doesn't reflect it. You know, that's good. Be where you are. Be, be right where you are and be honest with that question and say, no, I, if I'm honest, I don't live that way. That's good. That's fine. At least you know where you are now and you'll go into this study knowing I want to I see this guy. I want to hear what he has to say. I want to hear what Jesus preaches and the kind of things Jesus stands for. Because a lot of times what you'll find out is if you'll do that, you'll find out this Jesus was a little different than you thought he was. If this study doesn't shock you a little bit, if you don't bump into some things that surprise you a little bit, then I probably didn't teach it right. Because Jesus is absolutely shocking. He's absolutely engaging. And so tonight as we sing, and especially as we go to the table, Let that question work on you. And, and, and take it home with you. Let that one just sit there and, and bounce around in there. Who do I say that he is? And, and, and do I really say it? Or is it just what my mouth says? And, uh, and, and maybe we would, um, we would all come out the other side of this study changed. That's what I pray for.